You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Our first Kings reading is going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We'll just look at the first four verses. Several of you have asked me since we've announced that we'll be doing this, oh my goodness, well, you haven't asked so much as you've expressed your displeasure. Why are we going to be spending eight months in the Old Testament? Oh, my goodness. No, some of you haven't. You're like, yes, I'm so excited. Uh, if you are excited, that's probably because you might have read First and Second Kings before because there's some wild stories. If you want to know where the R-rated parts of Scripture are, I could give you the chapters and verses, but there's several of them here in First and Second Kings. Buckle up. You know, the truth, the reason we're going to do this is that preaching through books of the Bible reveals God's fuller picture for the world. When we preach through a book of the Bible, then the pastor doesn't get to decide what he wants to preach on in a given week. And it's not up to the agenda or sometimes the sin of the pastor to pick what you preach on. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, that we can't avoid the hard stuff. We can't dodge the stuff we don't want to talk about, especially here in the first four verses of Kings. Believe me, I don't love talking about sex, but here it will be right in our passage. We can't dodge the hard stuff when we preach through books of the Bible. Another reason I do this is uh, maybe just a, a personal goal of mine as a pastor I want to preach through the whole Bible or get as close to near it as I can uh, by the time I retire. I've got 40 years in pastoral ministry, 12 of which are already gone. And to preach through the whole Bible is going to take quite a bit of ambition. You'll probably notice before that from time to time we do a topical series. We just finished four weeks in prayer. But most of the time I rotate back and forth between an Old Testament and a New Testament book. And I'm usually asking God the question, what does our church need to hear? And what book of the Bible best captures that. And I'll give a little more detail about that in just a minute. Now, last thing to say is that if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about just taking an eight-week break from church. Don't. Please don't. I'm sorry, an eight-month break. And even in January, we are going to stop the First Kings series for just a little bit and do five weeks on our church's core values. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. We spent 12 months in Luke, so eight months in First and Second Kings isn't so bad, right? Yes, you're with me. All right, I hope I have your attention now. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. This is the word of the Lord. For the past six weeks, I have been engrossed in the TV series, The Rings of Power. Amazon's prequel to Tolkien's great mythology in The Lord of the Rings. The series goes backwards in time, hundreds and hundreds of years, to tell a story based on Tolkien's mythology to explain how things got to be so bad as they did by the time you get to The Hobbit. 
and the Lord of the Rings. The evil Lord Sauron and his evil powerful ring and Frodo's need to toss that ring into Mount Doom. How did things get to be so bad? You encounter all the same types of characters, elves, dwarves, humans, even these proto-hobbit people called Harfoots. I don't want to give away too much. But however small the evil is and however much the good guys win in the provisional battles, the lover of Tolkien's novels will know, or the movies, will know that this is a decline narrative. Things have to get worse. They have to get worse. If you know about how the stories start, you're seeing like, oh, this is this kind of nice prosaic little world. People kind of know each other, and it's beautiful, and yet there's evil is really, really small, but evil is growing and building, and the story is a decline narrative. Now, Amazon has spent almost $500 million making this three-season TV show. It's often believed to be Jeff Bezos' pet project. He's really excited about it, the CEO of Amazon. But why spend $500 million on a decline narrative? It's already widely popular, one of the most widely popular shows on television, and it's also widely derided because whenever something's popular, people have to criticize it. So lots of people are talking about it. Maybe you are too. But why so much attention? Do we really get this excited about decline narratives? I don't think we get excited about decline narratives. Rather, I think when we see a decline narrative, it helps us make sense of our own world. Just another example, like almost all popular young adult literature is some form of dystopian. Whenever we encounter decline narratives, we're, we, there's something about our own world that we're trying to make sense of. Consider American life in the year 2022. Deaths of despair, which the Princeton professors Case and Deaton uh, kind of grouped as a category of drug overdoses and suicides and drug deaths, or sorry, not drug deaths, but any death related to obesity. Deaths of despair have been on a massive rise in American life in the last 20 years. Consider uh, that since 2013, U.S. life expectancy rates have been slightly falling. Since about 2017, fertility rates have been below replacement rates. Social trust is on the massive decline, as defined by trust that we once had in these proud institutions like the church and the government and modern medicine. Trust in those things are on the decline. My generation younger is filled with an increasing and large number of people who left the church and don't seem to be coming back. Even our infrastructure, pipes, sewers, bridges, even our electrical system is on the decline. Perhaps we are drawn to decline narratives because we too are living in one. We're studying First and Second Kings because this too is a decline narrative. I've titled it Heading Toward Exile. You start out with the heights of King David, the heights of Israel's geopolitical power in the world, and everything there eventually will end up in exile. It's a decline narrative. So what does First and Second Kings tell us about our own time? How should we live? How should we respond to the decline that we see around us? I want to cover these questions over the next eight months. To start us off, I want to talk about noticing decline, acknowledging decline, and handling decline. Noticing decline, acknowledging decline, and handling decline this morning. So first, noticing decline. 
we must pay careful attention to how a whole book of the Bible starts out. The whole book of the Bible starts off in decline. The very first sentence, the narrator tells us, Now King David was old and advanced in years. Now, as I just said, David and his son Solomon represent about an 80-year reign where Israel was the most powerful geopolitical entity in the world. This was the heights of ancient Israel and its power in about the year 1000 B.C. This, and David was the best king in the history of the country. This is the king who defeated Goliath. This is the king who wrote half of Israel's hymn book called the Psalms. This is the king who battled so many enemies and helped conquer the promised land. And now here we start out, and he's an exhausted lame duck. The very beginning of the book, he's an exhausted lame duck. And where is he in verse 1? By context, it's obvious he's in a bed trying to get warm. Now, in the kings, especially in the Old Testament, there's two different kinds of beds. There is the marriage bed, yes, and there's a deathbed. Now, despite the best efforts, as we'll see, of the people around David to turn his bed into a kind of marriage bed, David is in a deathbed. He's just trying to get warm. The narrator of Kings has noticed the decline and starts our very story here. Now, there are many people who reject decline narratives. I started out with the assumption that we in American life are living in decline right now. And so First Kings can help us make sense of that. But there's a lot of people who don't agree. There's a lot of people who say, no, progress is actually the real story here and things are still getting better. The renowned atheist Stephen Pinker has written several books about this kind of topic. One book is called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Another book's called Enlightenment Now, The Case for, among many other things, The Case for Progress. Pinker notes that modern medicine has drastically improved life expectancy. Sure, we've experienced in the last 10 years a declining life expectancy in of America between one and two years. But if you go back to 1950, we've seen a 15-year life expectancy increase over the last 70 years. Child mortality rates have vastly improved. Way more people get secondary or college educations now. We have way more free time than almost all human beings in the course of history and most people in the West don't live a subsistence lifestyle. Pinker's right to say many things have gotten better. He says in Enlightenment Now, there can be no question of which was the greatest era for culture. The answer has to be today until it is superseded by tomorrow. But if Pinker is right, how does that explain all the decline that's so easy to feel? Anger on social media. Widespread social distrust, rapid inflation, the massive rise of anxiety and depression in American life, and so on. I could, I could give you a laundry list of competing factors to Stephen Pinker. Here's what I think Pinker misses. Because he's an atheist, he misses that happiness has got to be defined so much more broadly than narrow consumer capitalism. So much more broadly than just having more money, more stuff, more time to be entertained, living longer. If that's all of life, then it's pretty meaningless. And I think most of American culture is beginning to see that and feel and experience the decline. Having more money and having more free time and living longer does not make us happier. It doesn't. Rather, many of us are noticing decline ourselves or seeing it around us. We notice the decline by our culture's lack of confidence in marriage. Couples delay marriage longer than ever now. 
uh, couples that live together often never get married. And then, as we know, so many folks who are married don't stay that way. We notice that it's harder to get a living wage out of high school or college. We notice the widespread apathy of people in our culture. The unemployment rate's not terrible right now, but if you look at the lack of market labor participation rate, it's very high because lots of young men are sitting in their parents' basements playing video games. We have widespread addiction and widespread selfishness. I just went to my 20th year uh, high school reunion last weekend, and it was amazing encountering lots of people. It's, it's weird and it's tough being the pastor guy at your 20-year high school reunion because everybody has a comment about church, everybody, whether they were a part of one or not growing up. And this is a refrain I heard from several people, which is like, oh, that church, good for you. You do you, I'll do me. I heard that from several people. And it was amazing. They said, you know, I just, I'm the over church. Church has got to be about serving other people, you know what I mean? Meanwhile, as they talked, several conversations I was in were with people who were living completely for themselves. I was like, how can you criticize the church for caring only about ourselves? And sometimes that's a valid critique. But they're living only for themselves, and I felt a little defensive. Widespread selfishness in American culture just to get the next fix. Whatever it might be, it could be an entertainment fix. It could be me on the rings of power. Thankfully, Amazon's only releasing them, you know, once a week. Otherwise, I would be having a fix. Guys, widespread selfishness in American culture. We've got to notice the decline. Now, I want you to hear very quickly. I've said all these things. I don't want to pile on guilt. Maybe you're a part of these things I've mentioned. Now, I'm not talking about pile on guilt. I'm saying it's just important to notice the decline. How do we do that well? First is to listen. Listen to the life struggles of others. Don't rush in to give an answer. If you just are quiet and listen to the people around you, you will hear decline in people's lives, the decline of their health, the decline or deterioration of family relationships. Just listen. Notice the decline. Another way to notice decline, and this is one of my pet issues and I bring it up a lot, is to notice the news, but not all the time. I think if you're getting your news primarily over the television or over the internet, uh, in a qualified way, chances are you're being, becoming more angry and you're becoming more anxious. I think we should read the news. I just think we should do it on a weekly or a monthly basis. You, we really don't need to know everything that's going on. And if there's such a catastrophe in the world, somebody's going to tell me. Most of the time, honestly, with the news, I stick my head in a hole and I pay attention to it about once a month. I'm the last person to find out anything that's significant that's happened in the culture. And here's what I say about noticing decline. If you are paying attention to the news on a daily basis or you get tons of notifications on your phone, you can't notice things over time because you're in it. You are in the, the, you're in the stream of culture, so you can't notice how fast the current is. But if you only pay attention to the news on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, you'll notice a lot more trends, a lot more. You can be a more prayerful person. You can know what's going on, but you're not sucked in to the news cycle. If you want to be somebody who notices, you have to be someone who lives a slower life and cares about others. Now, next, we have to say that if we notice the decline, there's something in between noticing the decline and doing something about it. And that's acknowledging decline. Acknowledging decline, the second point this morning. You've got to acknowledge decline. You've got to acknowledge that it's affecting you, that it's doing something to you, and that you're a part of it. For instance, consider myself two years ago. 
every time I bend over, I had this nasty pain in my, in my stomach, and it got worse and worse over time. I was noticing the pain, but I wasn't really acknowledging that. Maybe I'm contributing to it. Maybe I'm making worse. I was just trying to ignore it. I was noticing it. I was trying to ignore it. I wasn't acknowledging it. And eventually, I had an annual physical, and I said, hey, this is what's going on for me. Doctor scheduled some tests, and ultimately, I had some very minor stomach ulcers that were very easy to cure with medicine. But they're like, hey, lay off the spicy foods. I love spicy foods. Hey, uh, it's 2020, so maybe you're dealing with some stress related to COVID. Maybe you should just chill out for a little bit or, you know, whatever it might be. I was contributing to it. I was noticing it, but I wasn't acknowledging it. I encounter a lot of you who notice problems in your life, but you trudge along as if it's no big deal, and you don't acknowledge that you are a part of the decline. So before we do something about it, we have to notice it and then acknowledge it. And that's what we see here in 1 Kings. We go from the narrator telling us that there's decline to the people in verse 2 telling us that there is decline in King David. You see, for an ancient culture, the strength of a king is tied very closely to the strength of the kingdom. So if you have a strong king, you'll have a strong kingdom. And if you have a weak king, like David here, people are nervous you're going to have a weak kingdom. And so we see those acknowledgments here, the people. David's trying to get warm at the end of verse 1. Friends, King David has had a lot bigger fish to fry in his life. He had King Gal- or he had Goliath there for a while. He had a lot of other battles that he had to fight. He had his own missteps that he had to deal with. Uh, he's, got a, he's had a coup attempt at his, from his son Absalom, the death of his best friend Jonathan. David's had big problems. And the fact that his problem now is that he just can't get warm is proof that he's diminished. Small problems equal a diminished king. David's lack of energy also means that he lacks, yes, it's about to get awkward, sexual energy. This is what's here. For an ancient, the king's sexual virility was also tied to his strength, which is why these people opt for the strategy that they do. Now, I'm not saying this is a godly strategy. It's not. I'm not saying this is what God intended. This is just what the people did, and the narrator of Kings is recording what they did. They try to find a beautiful woman to wait on the king. That phrase, wait on the king, carries sexual overtones throughout Scripture, including in Leviticus 18. And when it says in verse 4 that the king knew her not, that verb knew implies that David was supposed to know her in a physically intimate way. That's what that word in the ancient language means, to know, really know somebody physically intimacy, intimately. So we've gone from the narrator noticing decline to people in David's household, acknowledging that there's decline. David's lack of sex and power portends trouble and decline for the kingdom of Israel. You don't think we struggle with these issues today? Let me personally illustrate. Late this spring and into summer, I started noticing that I was experiencing a lot of low-grade dissatisfaction from you all, from folks in the congregation, minor irritations, frustrations, things that aren't going well, and you were telling me about it. I'd say on an average of about one to two times a day, beginning in the summer into August. And I noticed these issues and tried to solve them, alert from problem to problem, tried to meet with people. And please don't hear any criticism. If there's a problem, I'd like to know about it. But I was, it was just characterize our congregation by minor irritation. So I started thinking about that, and I was noticing the problems, but it didn't move into full acknowledgement 
until it became such a pervasive issue in early August, about two months ago. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm irritated and frustrated all the time. So of course, that's how the congregation is. Just like King David with his kingdom, if the pastor is experiencing irritation all the time, he should not uh, wonder that the people in his congregation are experiencing irritation too with things in the church or whatever it might be. I was the one, more than anyone else, putting anger or irritation or frustration out there, and it was affecting our congregation. And I I finally acknowledged the decline in my own heart, and I've worked for the last couple of months in identifying some deeper issues with the Lord, with some of my closest friends, and some small things I've began to do to, to arrest that decline and move back more towards health. I think we don't acknowledge decline because we fear weakness. Pastor Ben preached about this fully last week, but we fear weakness in ourselves. And like I did, admitting that my weakness is... is is a weakness, is very painful. Man, I'm irritated all the time. In what areas of your life are you too afraid to acknowledge decline? If we're not noticing decline in ourselves, maybe we're noticing decline in an organization or something we're proud of. A church, a school, some other civic organization, American culture. And we might acknowledge that in the decline, we have less power than we think we do to change things, in which case, our acknowledgement of decline should not lead us towards complaining about it. That's often what we do, right? If you're someone who feels like you can normally fix your problem, but you can't, mostly you just complain, or you gossip, or you backbite behind people's backs. I can't change this, so I'm just going to complain about it instead of praying. Don't complain. If you acknowledge decline, Pray, hey, Lord, what do you want me to do here? Is there anything I can do? Should I just leave it in your hands? But to even go there is to admit that we've already moved to our third point, handling decline. Once we've noticed decline and we acknowledge that I'm a part of it, how do we handle it? Let's look. How did the people in David's time try to handle David's decline? In verse 2, a young woman is sought for to give David perpetual warmth. Now, to to wait on him, again, likely sexually, and provide him service, like a servant would. Now, we know there are sexual overtones here because in verse 3, they seek for a beautiful woman. And whenever you see repetition in Old Testament narrative, it's, it's the writer saying, hey, neon sign here, this is important. So they seek for a beautiful woman in verse 3, and then they find Abishag the Shunammite, and it says about her in verse 4, The young woman was very beautiful. Well, of course she is. That's who they were seeking. But the fact that the narrator tells us again that she was very beautiful means they weren't just trying to find somebody to keep David warm. They weren't trying to find any old girl off the street. They were trying to find the most beautiful girl because they were trying to restore David's virility. And as we see, it doesn't work. In verse 4, the king knew her not. And we are to read into this that David was impotent. I told you to get awkward. David is being acted upon rather than being the actor. And you can see that David's helpers aren't really helping. They are noticing and acknowledging the decline, but they are not handling it in a godly way. And unfortunately, if we've done well enough to notice and acknowledge decline in our lives, we often do the same thing, opting not for a godly strategy. Consider the vain ways we try to handle bodily decline. 
there's now widespread Botox for women, and there's low T centers for men, and it's, we're just like afraid to age, and we're afraid to die. You could expect one of the most decadent cultures in world history to not want to deal with decline in this way. Notice that we're not all that different from the people in First Kings time. We still correct, or sorry, we still connect virility to social power. Consider some of the other ways we handle decline, like blind nostalgia. We talk about the good old days without reckoning with the sins of the past. Or consider the vitriol we rise to when we have competing visions for how to handle decline of someone else or some other problem. Just This is what most of our political discourse has become, which is just hate in tweet form. Just lack of thought, but we just hate each other. And we just, ah, my way of the common good is better than your way of the common good, so we just hate. That's not a good way to handle decline. Or consider another way we try to handle decline, which is we just move on to the next shiny new thing. We don't want to fix our old roads. We'll just build a new highway. Uh, we, our appliances are built for obsolescence now. We don't have things that are built for 30 years, so we just buy a new one when it breaks. This is one of the ways I know American culture is in decline because we have a throwaway culture. Our plastics, we throw them away. Consumer goods, we throw them away. Even houses aren't built the way they used to be built. And too often people we throw away. I think that's what the death of despair is about. We live in a throwaway culture, friends. And a throwaway culture is one that's going to decline. Cultures that built cathedrals to stand 1,200 years are cultures that are built to last. And cultures that build big box stores that won't even last for 40 years are not built to last. We're in a throwaway culture. And the way we've been handling decline are not going to work. Vanity, blind nostalgia, hatred, shiny newness. All these might work in the short term, but they won't work in the long term. What will? By seeking and living into a decline story of someone else. The gospel narratives about Jesus are a quick rise story. Very quickly in Jesus' ministry, thousands and tens of thousands of people are following him. And it's a decline narrative. Because opposition rises and rises and rises until Jesus dies a pretty lonely death on a cross, a public execution. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus keeps saying, I'm the greater heir of King David. I'm the one who's going to restore Israel. And it's a decline narrative to a cross. Until Christ becomes the true king in the line of David because he conquers the decline of death. That he'll no longer be frail, that there will no longer be any decline, and someday, as Revelation 21 says, there'll be no more tears or death or anything. And what will feel like decline will be permanently absorbed in Jesus' death, and he conquers it forever. Friends, we all live decline narratives. And all of our decline narratives can be deaths and resurrections in Christ. The increasing frailty of our bodies will become a resurrected and perfected body someday for those in Christ. The increasing decline of our cultural institutions will become permanent heavenly participation. We'll still be working in heaven. There'll still be culture, and it'll be perfect. The estrangement of relationships will become holy again in heaven for those who know the Lord. To the greater degree you believe these things, you won't run after those false ways of handling decline. You'll know that they don't work eternally, and you'll know that they'll just leave you angrier and sadder anyway. And to the greater degree you believe 
that you want to find your own decline narratives in Christ's death and resurrection, you'll have courage to deface the decline in your own life. You won't ignore it anymore. And to the extent you have power to help or change whatever decline you see or experience, the Holy Spirit will empower you and give you wisdom to make a difference where you are. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to hear the message we're supposed to hear in 1 Kings for us, for our church. That we might see and notice the decline around us and make whatever difference you're calling us to make. To make the change in our lives we're called to make. To make the changes in our workplaces, our families. Lord, help us. Empower us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.